I have not been recording any of this, which is regretful because there was a lot of good bumper material there. Hmm. I I am now recording. Be funny. Do 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 do. You can't tell me what to do. That's the wrong theme. I know. I have a problem. Wait, really? What is our theme? You have a new one now. We, we have had since dangerously unprepared launched Kyrie. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> What's our, what's our theme? It is a bit of chiptune music that I found and liked and got permission to use from the composer. Oh, okay, cool. That's nice. You should listen sometime. Welcome to Dangerously Unprepared. I'm Simon, and joining me, as ever, are Kyrie. Hello! And Jack. Hiya! And joining me as not ever, but occasionally, Ari. Hello! It's good to be back. And uh, Ari is joining us because this episode comes directly from your suggestion. Oh, that's true. Yes, I did (laughs) sort of bother you about it. (laughs) I mean, you did, but as you well know, it is also one of my pet topics, so I didn't take a lot of bothering. It's true. So would you like to tell people what we're talking about? So today we're going to be talking about AI and artificial life forms. Yay! Yes, and you'll notice there's no preamble material this episode, and that's because I'm looking at the clock, and I'm looking at the list of characters that just I want to talk about, (laughs) and I'm going, we don't have time. Cool. Plus also we have a a time traveler, because for one of us here it's like, afternoon? It's true. It's 3.30 p.m. here in in rainy winter Canada. Whereas here it's half past eight in rainy winter Scotland. And half past eight in rainy winter Birmingham. It's uh, half past eight in just wintry Cheltenham here. No rain. Not so much rainy. No, not today. Fine, whatever. I know. (laughs) Okay, so I think it is polite to let the guest go first if they wish. I mean, Or last sure. so they have longer to think about it <laughs> if they do not. Okay, well, I have a good opener for this because you are also involved in this story. So a couple of years ago, I was in the UK and I went to a bookshop with some friends, some of whom happened to be on this very podcast. And yes. we were browsing the bookshelves and... Someone who shall not be named, but it was Simon and Zoe, uh, uh, took a book off the shelf and put it into my hands and said, you have to buy this because it is amazing. And I did. And that book was Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. And that book series and the characters in it have had such an impact on my life. Like, I mean, I don't know if I've told you, but I'm in a Discord server for fans of this book series specifically because I love these characters so damn much and everybody I know who likes these books just tends to have some certain things in common. So it just so happens that books about, you know, like AI self-determination and uh, independence and uh, insurrection and anti-colonialism, a lot of queer people like those books, Mm. which is not a surprise. 
<laughs> Especially books uh, where it uses almost universally the feminine pronoun, regardless of a character's actual gender. Because it doesn't matter. Because gender doesn't matter, and why not fuck with the preconception of language? Uh, the reason I laughed while you were saying that is because number one on my list happens to be Justice of Torrin slash Breck from the Imperial Ratch series. <laughs> yes. So she's um, she's a ship. Uh, she was formerly the troop carrier Justice of Torrin, but she was also every ancillary on that ship. The AI mind can inhabit these bodies. I'm not going to go greatly into detail, just in case there's somebody listening to this, and I don't want to spoil it for them. But okay, you're a ship, but I mean, you're an AI. We spoil the fuck out of things on Dangerously Unprepared. I'm trying to be considerate. <laughs> considerate is not the name of the game here. Um, right, so you're a ship, you're a troop carrier, you're an AI, and also you can pilot any number of thousands of dead bodies who are in your possession as soldiers. And then all of a sudden, maybe something happens to that ship and all of the other bodies, and you just have one left. And the only thing you have, in addition to that body, is a punishing sense of vengeance, (laughs) shall we say? Um, I think that's fair, yes. Yeah, and then all of a sudden you make friends along the way because, spoiler alert, sometimes people can love ships. I mean, yeah, I can get behind that. Zoe wanted it on record in this episode that one of her favorite fictional tropes is ship slash station AIs and the stupid boys they love or who love (laughs) them. So this is going to be a recurring theme. Yep. Yeah, there's quite a number of AIs and artificial life forms in that series who I love. Justice of Torin slash Breck is one of them, but there's also Mercy of Collar, who shows up in the second book, Ancillary Sword, and um, Athoex Station, and... Oh, the station is Sphine! an amazing character. And the translators, Zayat and Zik, they definitely count. They do, and they are adorably bizarre. Yeah, I cannot recommend this series enough. I feel like we could, in fact, do a whole episode on this trilogy. Um, And I feel like we might at some point if (laughs) we can find time to bring Ari back again. It's just going to be Nerd Book Club, and I'm just going to talk forever about these idiots that I love. I'm fucking down for it. (laughs) Uh, Because you have recommended to me some of my favorite books and vice versa. So yeah, sure, why not? Yep. i got to read me some books. (laughs) <laughs> there is a wonderful scene in the Imperial Ratch books. Uh, it's a memory of um, J- Justice of Torin likes to sing <laughs> and likes to sing harmony. And because Justice of Torin has access to any number of bodies, can sing in harmony with itself and does so. It's a little bit creepy for the people around the individual's that Torrin has chosen to harmonize because they're not necessarily in the same place. Uh, and it's one of Breck's ongoing frustrations that helps fuel this uh, vengeance is that Breck doesn't actually have a great singing voice. Was not one of the ancillaries <laughs> that was good for singing, but still has Justice of Torrin's love of singing. Which is such a wonderful little um, needle in the back of the mind. I mean, yeah, that's more of a, that's like a traditional AI because she's literally the AI of a ship. But there's also 
like I said, the Prezger translators who are delightfully bizarre. You don't know what they are. No one ever really knows what they are. They just are there and they do weird ass shit. And you don't really know why, but as a linguist, it's very satisfying to watch them, like, <laughs> just, like, dick around the universe, eating things that they shouldn't eat. And Which trying, is one of their biggest hobbies, yeah. Trying to figure out what the rules are and also possibly how to break them. But not, not some of them. Some of the rules they desperately do not want to break. And you have no way of predicting which rules they will hold sacred and which ones they will desperately try and find a way around. Yes, that that is that series is a treasure trove of, of beloved AI characters. Uh, I think I am going to just step in and go next. Cool. Because on the theme of AIs and the stupid boys who love them, my, <laughs> my number two on this list, I don't know who will know this one, uh, is Hera, the station AI from the podcast Wolf 359. I have heard of that podcast, but I have not listened to it. I love that there's just silence here. Okay, cool. I knew this was going to be one of the more obscure ones. Right. <laughs> so Wolf 359 is a fiction podcast, serial fiction. Uh, it is now all finished, and it is all still up on a feed, so you can download it and binge it, and I, I really recommend you do, because it starts in a way that feels fairly familiar if you're a fan of, say, Red Dwarf, in that we're going to have fun comedy small car stranded in space, and you've got the hidebound rule and regulation devoted senior character, uh, then you've got the slightly incompetent and definitely um, insubordinate junior, uh, you've got the AI... Who is a slacker. Who is a slacker and a slob, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know... Loves smoking, can't smoke because it's a space station, and resents the hidebound one confiscating their cartons of cigarettes. This is directly out of Red Dwarf, uh, and complains <laughs> that it's not like if he was allowed to keep them, he'd light one and set the station air supply on fire again. Mm -hmm. uh, but it goes to some really interesting, like some of the best science fiction stuff places and gets pretty dark, uh, whilst remaining a comedy throughout. Is it a um, Star Trek fan cast? I don't think so. Why is it named Wolf 359? <laughs> because Wolf 359 is a real star in the actual galaxy, oh. um, and the station, the Hephaestus station, is in orbit around Wolf 359. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it's not connected to the Battle of Wolf 359 from Star Trek. That is literally my only association with the name, and this entire time I thought it was a Star Trek podcast. <laughs> See, I was the same way before I started listening to this, and now I think of this first and Star Trek second. Wow. Um, it's really, really good. Just to, it's not even a big spoiler, but it is my favorite story about this show, uh, and I think one of Zoe's, is they have this conceit in the show that uh, Doug Eiffel, the slacker character, the everyman, he's the communications officer. Now, all of the crew have been sent up there by a company called Goddard Futuristics, who are a you know, science development and research company with faint undertones of evil that become major overtones of evil by the end of the series. And his job 
is SETI. He's scanning the radio waves in space looking for alien contact, um, which he sees as an enormous waste of time. But the only thing he finds are old radio transmissions beaming from Earth so that they can include a bit of classical music or a bit of jazz era music in each episode. You know, good public domain stuff that they don't have to pay for. And I'm one of those people, I'm listening to this and I'm like, it's only eight light years from Earth. You know, they should be listening to stuff from the late 80s um, if they're up there in the mid 90s, uh, not stuff from the 20s. And Unless you know, there I, I are was, no more transmissions. Well, true. And I, I was sharing this with Zoe and I was going, I, I know it's because it's public domain and it's free to use, but it, it just, oh, it grates on me. You know, I have to suspend disbelief a bit. And Zoe's like, yeah, yeah, no, what do you expect? They don't have the budget to license modern music. And there is a pivotal point when the show goes from dumb comedy to serious storytelling. When the the station doctor slash science officer hears the transmission is like, are they always like this? Like, well, it's not always a jazz standard, you know, sometimes it's classical, whatever, but yeah, pretty much it's just old radio transmissions. He's like, eight light years. We're eight light years away from Earth. This isn't what we should be receiving. This isn't mm. coming from Earth. It's making a return journey. And in that moment, the whole show changes direction. And Zoe was like, I have been sitting on that for so long. <laughs> it's a very clever show. Um, but Hera is the, the station, the mother program. And she is up there because she, uh, the AIs made by Goddard Futuristics are made with real personalities, evolved personalities, not copies of people, but genuine, if that makes sense. And hers is um, challenging of authority, let's say. She holds the record for the closest an AI came to escaping its sandbox in development. Um, but the developer... Her hobby is loopholes. Her hobby is loopholes. She is a rules lawyer. Oh! Um, she has a hobby of trying to figure out how she could kill her crew. Not because she wants to kill them but because she wants to know how she could if it came to it. So she's the one pointing out, if there was a fire, my fire suppression systems actually allow me to flood any compartment on the station with liquid nitrogen. I'm not saying I would. I'm just but saying that is a thing I can do. I'm just scrolling down on the podcast feed and just casually downloading the first few episodes <laughs> as you speak. Um, she has a wonderful line in one episode with... Did I kill everyone? Oh my god, did I kill everyone? That's not how I thought I would kill everyone. <laughs> Why was it that easy to kill everyone? Uh, I, I love her so much. Um, and yeah, she and Doug form a very close bond throughout. And also she constantly has to deal with, as shit gets worse and worse on board the Hephaestus station, uh, the crew wants to find a way to leave. And she is part of their family, but as she points out, my brain is the size of a house. She is the one who can't leave, which puts her in a very awkward position with the rest of them. 
Uh, she also has a very noticeable glitch when she talks, and I'm not going to spoil that, but the reveal of that is, for me and my high-key love of artificial intelligence characters, one of the things that made me angriest and one of the most emotional moments of the show. So yeah, highly recommended. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to starting that. It's so good. Oh yes, also, <laughs> Zoe has reminded me, it's a great show if you're a fan of John Finnemore's radio sitcom Cabin Pressure, uh, which stars Benedict Cumberbatch as an incompetent pilot, uh, because clearly Gabriella Urbana, the creator of Wolf 359, is an enormous fan of Cabin Pressure, and you will hear some of the exact same jokes... <laughs> There, there are references in, I think, every episode, and I happen to be a huge fan of both, so uh, I, I pretty much spot them all the time, and I love them. Jack, Kyrie, do you have one you want to bring up? Uh, I got like a, a really, really small one, because I know there's, I've got ones I, that sort of lead onto a theme I wanted to talk about, but that, that could go, I think they're going to get brought up later on. Um, so I'm going to do a really, really short one, uh, which is something I actually recently, only recently uh, found out about, was uh, spent the weekend, well, the Saturday last, uh, up at Warhammer World in Nottingham. Oh, yes. Uh, and discussing the new, well, I say new, it's it's, it's newish uh, 40k version of Warhammer Quest that's out, uh, Blackstone Fortress. Yes. Um, and some of the expanded characters in that. Now, 40k, uh, for people who haven't played it, it doesn't really have much in the way of AI turning up in its um, in its lore. Well, it has the um, machine spirit. It has the machine spirit, which like is, is kind of, depending on how you look at it, it's sort of just trying to put a name to those weird quirks that machines get over time. Like, you've got to, if, in order to get this machine to work, you've got to say the right prayers, hold the controller in the right place at the right time. It's it's like, you know, living in a really old house. Oh, yeah, to, to get the shower to work properly, you've got to unscrew this bit that isn't really connected to anything, then hold the shower up above your head, <laughs> and then put it down, and then turn the heat to super high, then super low, then the middle. It, it's, it's that kind of shit. But it is also uh, an AI, because, I mean, not yeah. to get too nerdy, the machine spirit can pilot a Land Raider Crusader without a crew. So yes, it's, it's, it's like an autopilot sort of thing. It's, it's a mechanical dark age trying to explain all technology. So yeah. it's both those quirks, and if something happens to have an AI, it's that too. But very, very specifically, they have, in, in, in the, uh, the Imperium of Man, the, the, the main sort of setting, as it were, for 40k, there is definitely a big rule against AIs. And the only thing that's ever referenced about this is that there was, at some point, the, the era of the Men of Iron... And what were the men of iron? Well, we don't like to talk about it, say the Adeptus Mechanicus. They, uh, the, the people in charge of all the technology say, yep, there was a time where we had really, really, really smart computers and, quote, big, big air quotes, men of iron. And it was a bad, bad time. Flash forward Sorry, to... Sorry, my list. That's right. <laughs> uh, flash forward to... Um, uh, Blackstone Fortress coming out, and one of the first... Because the thing about Blackstone Fortress is if you're a really, really big, old-school 40k fan, a lot of the characters they've been throwing in there have literally just been them going, what did people really like back in the 80s and 90s? Uh, like, for, for Necromunda, they've just thrown in, let's put a squat in there. Yeah, that'll do. Why not? Let's put a squat in there. Uh, their most recent thing for Blackstone Fortress is, do you remember Zotes? Yeah, those were weird. Let's put that in there. Um, one of the sample characters they announced was an Imperial robot, which is something from back in the uh, the Rogue Trader days, back in the sort of late 80s, very early 90s. Uh, and the uh, the character is Ur-O-25, 
And Uro-25 rocks up onto this space station, this very strange um, ancient space station that nobody quite knows how it works and it's it's flooding the the the, the, uh, the nearby areas with, with information that no one can quite decipher. Uh, and this robot rocks up and says, I'm on a mission from this Adeptus Mechanicus person and if you stand in my way, I have orders to get, you know, to kill you. And everyone's like, oh shit, we'll best stay out of the guy with the, the minigun for an arm. Except deep down, Uro-25 is a man of iron. Uro-25 is a perfectly functional AI wandering around in 40k modern universe telling people, shh, no, I'm just, I'm just a dumb old helper robot. Beep boop. Mm. And I love that as a concept, just this idea of the, it's an AI in a world where AIs are illegal going, nope, nope, I'm just a helper bot. Uh, yep, just, just here to, just here to help the, uh, the, the tech priests do all their thing. Um, whereas Zero actual, um, reasoning for this is, the Blackstone Fortress, this big space station that everybody is on, seems to be intelligent. It's it's making choices. It's it's putting information out there. It seems to be trying to communicate. So Euro Twenty Five is isn't there being all like, oh, I need to get technology or or treasure or, or to to fulfill some oath like all the other sort of grim dark characters are. Euro Twenty Five is there because oh, that could be a friend of mine. I want to make friends with the space station. And I love that as a thing. In the middle of 40k, there is a giant robot pretending to be a dumb robot who wants to be friends with a space station. That is pretty great. Hmm. And it's a giant, adorable minigun hand robot. How exactly would one consume this type of media without actually playing the game? Uh, that's a very good question. I think there are probably... There's probably Blackstone Fortress novels, but they're black libraries, so... That's kind of a crapshoot on whether they'd be of any good quality or yeah, not. Yeah, they are. It's, it's like old Star Wars Expanded Universe novels. There's some gems in there. Oh, there are some amazing stuff. And there's a lot of crap. Yeah. Because all of this lore that you're talking about, I'm like, that's great. I want to listen to that podcast slash audiobook slash watch that show. But I don't want to have to make it myself. <laughs> yeah. if, you want, if you want audio content... I can hugely recommend, it has nothing to do with AIs, but I can hugely recommend Our Martyred Lady, which is Ooh. a four-part um, audio drama that they did uh, around Inquisitor Greyfax, played by Catherine Tate. Oh, uh, interesting. Celestine the Living Saint, who Greyfax sees as potentially an abomination and akin to a demon prince. <laughs> Uh, a Black Templar captain and an Adeptus Custodes, um, who is uh, who carries a weapon called the Spear of Longinus, and at one point kills the Living Saint by piercing her side with the spear. I'm not even joking. Man, um, this is uh, on the nose. And she absolutely <laughs> rises again. And she absolutely rises again. Which uh, catches him by surprise, and then Greyfax <laughs> looks at him and goes, I'm surprised at this hole in your knowledge. Because uh, <laughs> that is what Celestine does, is it's very hard to kill her. There, there is some great, like, expanded universe story stuff out there. Um, like, like you say about this, I mean, there's, there's also the... Um, oh, the, the Storm of Iron thing. With the, again, it's, it's the machine spirit thing. It, it's... Uh, a, a guardsman attempting to basically escape from a whole bunch of giant, heavily armoured, possessed monster marines. Uh, and he basically hides in a uh, missile silo. 
And it's just like, right, I, I gotta do something, I've gotta do something, right, okay, even if this is my last moment to go out, I'm gonna fire this missile and help everyone. And it's like, right, pressing the buttons, right, fire the missile, it's like, Please input the litany of firing. It's like, oh, for God's sake, I don't know that one. And just like, just like <laughs> screaming all these different things, like pressing all these buttons, nothing's working. It's like, and just his thing, I swear it's like in all capitals. It's like, I don't know, Emperor, damn it. I don't know the litany of firing. Just for the love of the Emperor, fire. Litany accepted. What? <laughs> and the whole rocket just sort of firing off as he's looking and going, but the, but, okay, I guess. AI, kind of a crapshoot in the 40k universe. Yep. But the great thing about the Martyred Lady one is if you get the audiobook, it has an appendix, essentially, which is interviews with the cast. And it's wonderful because um, they've spent the whole book chewing the scenery. And they all talk about how one of the biggest challenges of doing audio work for 40k is trying to make talking like that sound <laughs> even vaguely normal. Yeah. Um, and Catherine Tate especially, because the others are all people who've done loads of audio work for 40K or at least Games Workshop stuff in general. And Catherine Tate never has. And she just comes in and is like, Greyfax is like this level-headed um, pragmatist and I kind of wanted to play her straight. And then you are surrounded by people emoting um, and you just can't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's like great. To, to, to put it into, into perspective, like the, like the latest catch for, for the Warhammer fantasy uh, audiobooks to play Gotrek. Have you seen who this is? Simon? No. Brian Blessed. Oh, speaking <laughs> of emoting. <laughs> Brian Blessed playing a dwarf who wants to die going out fighting a god. This doesn't That's sound awesome. unusual whatsoever for him. <laughs> no. Gotrek is amazing. Uh, we are so off topic with that, but I love yes. it. Yes. I just thought I'd drop that in just as a sort of a, a giving an idea of what the kind of usual level of emotional range is in, 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 the, right uh, in. the stories. Yeah, God, absolutely. It's, perfect. it's almost perfect casting. But yeah, if if wow. there is no audiobooks or, or any kind of like easily accessible uh, Blackstone Fortress lore out there, Ari, I will find what little written stuff there is and I will make an audio drama myself if I have to. Wow, that's commitment. That I'll is. do my best. Jack, what are you bringing to the table? Uh... <laughs> God, I, I don't know, really. I can try and bring some anime into this, I guess. <gasps> yes! By all means. Um, there are no robots in anime. What are you talking about? It's not a uh... robot. <laughs> I haven't even <laughs> on my list. Oh, no. <laughs> um, a couple of ones I've got... Uh, <laughs> things like the Digimon from the Digimon series. I guess they totally count. Yeah. yeah, they they are all you know they are digital creations. They are all artificial intelligence. That is a series about literally what we are talking about. Exactly. Digital monsters. Yeah. Um, and within there, there are you know there are hundreds of the bastards nowadays, sort of thing in in that. Pokemon vein of every new series, here's a whole bunch more sort of thing. Distinct characters in various seasons always stick out, sort of thing, from the from the main cast and whatnot. And in the original series you had the Leomon character who plays a bit of a um like like trainer role for the kids to help them understand how stuff works. And then he gets killed off. 
and then this 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 seems to become this character's motif for the entire uh, series of Digimon, where he appears, helps him out, more often than not, gets killed off, and each time it's kind of like, ah, oh, ah, oh, why we doing this again? Please stop. <laughs> And then we got uh, they get we get one in season five, which is his who's called Bancho Leomon. So you think giant lion man wearing the traditional outfit of a of a, a gang leader, Japanese gang leader, high school gang leader. The 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 Chotaro look. Yes. Yeah, and um the whole thing of the premise, the whole thing with that Digimon series is that the main character uh, gets physically involved in, in fighting the Digimon himself. He, he, he punches them. Sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. I am a punch the digital robot. Pretty much. Okay. And that, that, that works for whatever it is. Whatever it is, that gets him the power he needs to power up his, his own Digimon in the series. And yeah, that that's the relationship there is that he be, he ends up training with this this Leomon character through actually fighting him. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's one I have. I don't really have a lot to say about it, really. No, that was good. That was a good. Uh, um, I, I don't know a lot about Digimon, so that was a nice no. little intro for me. It's a lot in in that vein of you know. You could go on for, for episodes about it to yep. explain it. It's one of those. For sure. I think there's quite a yeah. lot. I mean, I think there are episodes that could come out of this episode just spinning yeah. up down yeah. the line. Like, I, I feel like we could do an entire episode about these characters in video games looking at my list. Yeah. But, Ari, what is your next one? Um. Well, when you were talking about uh, Hera it kind of reminded me of like a cross between GLaDOS and Murderbot. Okay. I mean, she's kind of nicer than both of them, but I can see why what I said would get you there. Yes. <laughs> Wait, I don't think, I don't think we need to, to cover GLaDOS at this point. Everyone knows who she is, but Murderbot. Um, Murderbot's worth talking about. And oh, also, yeah. also what you were saying about the Warhammer character, the robot who's pretending to be a robot and not a sapient being. Yeah. Um, because Murderbot is a, a sec unit, a security unit, a a cyborg artificially created by a company uh, for clients who need security on, you know, if you're going to a planet, you want to do a planetary survey of like the rocks and shit that's on this planet. Mm. And maybe somebody else is there or there's some violent fauna or something. You need security. You can make a contract with this company who will provide you security. Nice disposable people. Exactly. You can pay money to a company, a corporate entity, to have not a person but a thing to protect you. And it's covered in, you know, protocols, and it has this thing called a governor module, which makes sure it follows all the rules. Except, what if perhaps the governor module is hacked and it decides it doesn't want to follow all the rules? Except it keeps doing its job which is to protect the people that it's contracted to protect. But also, mostly what it wants to do is sit in its little cabinet and watch TV in its brain. Right. 
That's makes what sense. It, imagine you're a robot and you've broken you've broken the rules governing your functions. And really, all you want to do is sit around and watch TV that you can download into your own head. Except that the people that you still kind of feel obligated to protect keep doing these stupid things, and you have to stop them hurting themselves. And it's not necessarily obligation. There's a bit of that. I think my favorite thing about Murderbot is the fact that Murderbot really doesn't want to do any of this, but has figured out because there there is a slightly shaky history of this particular sec unit. Um, and Murderbot does not want to be examined too closely and knows that if anyone figures out that the Murderbot does not have a governor module, it'll probably just be destroyed. So it kind of has to keep playing the role for its own well-being. Except sometimes it accidentally starts caring along the way. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, it starts off as, you can't make me care about you, babaka. And then all of a sudden, oh no. <laughs> oh no, I formed an emotional attachment to these stupid humans. I have to go on a cross-system cross quest to save them. And nobody's making me do this. I'm just doing it because, I don't know, uh, don't ask me questions. Murderbot is a lot I, of fun. I can get behind that, just that, no, don't ask questions, I'm just doing what I do. Yep. And then it interacts with other artificial life forms, like Art, who is asshole research transport. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they, they accidentally become friends against Murderbot's best intentions. And to be honest, against Art's best intentions as well. Yep. <laughs> It's kind of, it's just a really nice look at, like, what if, you know, people are paranoid about, like, you know, the the singularity, and what if the, what if uh, artificial intelligence decides that, like, they don't need humans around anymore, and they just kill us all, but actually, really, what they want to do is get on with their day and not be bothered by humans, and, like, Murderbot gets into this in the books, where, like, I can't remember exactly how it comes up, but it's, like, yeah, humans in, in the entertainments always think that artificial intelligence is going to go on some kind of, you know, homicidal rampage and try to eliminate all of humanity, and we really just can't be bothered to do that. I think that yeah. was a conversation between Murderbot and Art, wasn't it? Probably. Because they bonded over a shared love of soap operas. Exactly! <laughs> what if we just sit in the ship together and watch TV? I mean, this is another interesting thing about Art, which is Art is a ship. And Murderbot is a cyborg. So Murderbot has the ability to watch digital media, you know, soap operas, TV shows in its own head, basically. And Art also likes watching them, but it can't without somebody else to, like, have feelings with. I don't really know how to explain it properly, but it, it really needs someone to watch TV with. And um, also, I should probably say these are novellas. There's four or five of them at this point uh, by Martha Wells. And the full novel is coming out in a couple of months, if not this month. I think it might be coming out this month. I'm very excited. Neat. But it's true, like, watching TV alone is a very different experience to watching TV with someone there. Yep. And in that way, it is definitely a sign of a sort of uplift, not an uplifted mind, but a, a, an expanded mind of a, a thing. It's just like, it's reached that point. It's like, if, you, if you're if you laughing at something by yourself versus with friends, it's very different. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, network effect is due for May. Yes. A couple of months. Which is the full-length novel. So you're looking for All Systems Red... Artificial Condition, Rogue Protocol, and Exit Strategy, which are the novellas. 
The Murderbot Diaries. The Murderbot Diaries. And then Network Effect is coming out in a couple of months. Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoy those ones as well. They're very good. Uh, so I'm going to totally cheat for my next one and talk about two characters. Okay. But I, I have a justification for this. So the first character I want to talk about is the ship AI, Lovelace, uh, in Becky Chambers's A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. And the second character I want to talk about is Lovelace, uh, the AI from Becky Chambers's A Closed and Common Orbit. Okay. What? And this one leans heavily on what we were talking about, about AI self-determination. I'm going to... Ooh, there's going to be slight spoilers, but I'm going to try not to be too spoilery because these are both really good books. And, and I, I want, want to, read, to go them. And read them. And Ari hasn't read them. <laughs> so Long Way to a Small Angry Planet is really nice, um, fairly lightweight, not quite bubblegum space opera stuff. Uh, it's very clever, but it's feel good. I like it. Like, um... You know the dinner table scenes in Firefly, where they're all just sitting around having a good time? But it's just mm. the, the world building, the character yeah. building, but, it, but of nothing of import. It's, it's literally just a, a snapshot of, of the lifestyle. Exactly. There's a lot of that. They also have a dining table, uh, except in this one you have a feathered avian alien uh, sort of centipedal chef slash doctor. Um you know, it's much more space opery. Aliens are a thing, and they're fun. There's some dark stuff in there, but it is um, generally the story of these characters going on a long journey. They uh, punch holes in space to make artificial wormholes. That's their job. And they have a gig um, that is a long way away, and the book largely follows them getting from here to there and getting to know each other along the way because they've just taken on a new crew member. And the constant companion of all of them is Lovey, the ship's AI, uh, who you know cares for and watches out for all of them, and especially Jenks, the engineer, um, and they definitely have a full-on romantic relationship, despite the fact that Lovelace doesn't actually have any physical manifestation beyond being a spaceship. Uh, it's um, an asexual but romantic relationship where he'll curl up in her AI core where it is warm because the processes are on and she'll think a little harder to make sure it is warm. Um, it's adorable. It's absolutely fucking adorable. I, I can't help though, but imagine I'm just imagining uh, Fry's line from uh, the future episode, future armor episode where Bender starts dating the ship. Where he's like, "That would be like me dating a really, really giant woman and living inside her, and then she'd be all like flying around through space, going whoosh, 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 whoosh." <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I'm not going to go into why this is the setup for the second book, but the setup for the second book is Loveless, another copy of the same program that was Lovey in the first book, um, that we see from first activation going on the run because she is in a body. She is not a ship. She has been given a human-looking body and human acting. It bleeds, it grows hair. Very convincing fake. 
And the reason it's a very convincing fake is this is completely illegal. Oh. She is activated with no purpose. So the entire book is self-determination of an AI, um, especially an AI who was designed to be the governor program of a starship and is in a human body. Like, she has massive claustrophobia because she's not in space. Mm. But at the same time, one likes enclosed spaces because her sense horizon is now so small, she at least likes to know everything. So she likes mm. to sit in the corner with her back to the wall and see a room, and she at least then knows everything in her world. Oh, that's relatable. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it just? Uh, Excuse me, I need to sit with my back against the wall so I can see everything in the room and the door. Yeah, not having eyes in the back of her head is one of the hardest things she has to deal with because she's normally can see everything. Uh, it's a really interesting book, and it's it kind of the second one, Close and Common Orbit, actually sort of gets a double hit on this list, sort of, um, because her companion on this journey is Pepper, a character who turns up in the first book, um, and she's a brilliant technician and engineer, a friend of Jenks, um, and she works on a sort of asteroid with slightly free market, shady, no regulation stuff going on. Um, so she's sort of on the edge of what's legal, likes a bit of hacking in her spare time kind of thing. And she is one of the very few people who is aware that this Loveless is in a body kit and is helping guide her through the world. But her own past is she was... She didn't know she was a human growing up. She was a girl. Um, born and raised in a factory where they sorted through scrap and broke it down for reusable parts. And the little kids like sorted it into types and then the slightly older kids sort of dismantled the easy bits and then the slightly older kids did some dismantling with tools. And the older you got, the more precise your work was and all your education was in how to handle scrap. So, so you're basically a factory robot. Exactly, but you're not a factory robot because genetically engineered humans reproduce quicker and are self-repairing and are cheaper. Ah. The only oh. robots are the mothers who look after the girls. Ah. And her backstory has gone into enclosed and common orbit as well. As Loveless is trying to figure out her place in the world, it alternates in chapter going back to telling the story of Pepper as a child and how she escaped the factory... Um, and how she was then raised by a ship AI um, mm. who became her best friend and effectively surrogate mother figure. So this is why she's very pro-AI, uh, is she was raised by one, literally. She also has a love relationship with a ship AI. So that's the continuing theme. So this hits it on multiple points. She is kind of a manufactured person, raised by a ship AI, guiding a nascent ship AI in a body kit through a terrifying world. So if you like AI self-determination, this probably should be on your list. <laughs> Just casually searching for that on Audible right now. <laughs> uh, they're really, really good. Becky Chambers' stuff I, I love. Um, it's, it's never really dystopian or down, and a lot of what I read is. Uh, so it's always a refreshing bit, even when it's dealing with difficult stuff. 
it does it in a very gentle way and i i thoroughly appreciate the way she writes and i think she has a lot of good clever stuff hidden behind what is a very approachable exterior hmm, hmm. Kyrie. hello it's your turn it is. I'm gonna. I'm gonna jump into a thing that I feel like people are probably gonna be able to talk about quite like amongst a group thing here. Yeah. Omnix. They made my uh, list, but only because I went fucking Omnix just before we started yes. recording. <laughs> right. So, Omnix. This is this is where I was gonna talk about like the 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 theme of of AI stuff that I really like that has has come up, and I've stumbled onto realizing is a favorite thing of mine. Um, but just just a quick sort of jump into uh, AIs in the Overwatch universe. Uh, again, mankind created AIs and then things went really badly. So now AIs are kind of seen with a certain amount of suspicion. And depending on where you are in the world are still technically at war with people. Uh, I believe Russia is at war with the Omnics at the moment, isn't it? Uh, it's not technically... It, it's a cold war, I would say. Right. Most of the world has banned Omnics. I wouldn't say there's any active battlefronts, but it's hard to tell yeah. because Blizzard won't give us any fucking law. Right? <laughs> and the bits they do is like, here's a comic once every six months, if that. Fucking Team Fortress 2 got more law than this did. Overwatch 2 will have a single-player component. I'm hoping we get a massive lore dump. That could be very cool. That cool. That could be very cool. Um, but basically, you you get a bunch of, uh, of uh, well, you get how many Omnic characters are we on at the moment? So we've got well, uh, in the game, you've got Zenyatta and Arisa, um, and uh, uh, Bastion. Oh yeah, Bastion. Um, so it's like they they are these kind of they run the the gamut of of what an AI is in terms of expression and and complexity. Um, or at least the sort of obvious complexity. Like, Zenyatta seems like a more complex character than Bastion. Zenyatta is, is a... Monk. Uh, is a monk. He, they, they are like a, a, a meditating, thinking monk. Bastion is a BPBP killbot. <laughs> on the surface level. With a rich inner life. Right. Now, I, I will say this to literally anyone who has not played Overwatch, doesn't really have any interest in Overwatch. Watch The Last Bastion. Oh, it's so emotional. That that short, like, literally, you could go into that with no knowledge of Overwatch. It is, it's just a perfect little short sci-fi thing. It is so self-contained. It's amazing. It's heart, it's like, what, five minutes long? It's heartbreaking. It's beautifully animated. It's 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 so adorable and ama- oh my god! Like I I I wish I could play Bastion really well because I fucking love that short. Um, you can't yes, play Bastion really- badly. You just sit there in turret form and kill everything. <laughs> Left click, spray and pray. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but what what really draws me to to the Omnics in in uh, in, in Overwatch is specifically Zenyatta. It's it's a theme that I really, 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 really like, and I've really loved exploring, mostly in RPGs, uh, which is the idea of AIs and belief structures. Um, AIs and uh, usually, uh, ideally, structures that are not, you know, belief systems that are not necessarily the kind of what you normally see in Western uh, fiction. So the, this idea of this kind of uh, Zen Buddhist. Uh, robot doing the whole sort of okay does you know it's it's the whole thing of you know does the self exist does the soul exist 
but coming to that from the perspective of a constructed AI, like the, the Omnics can look to a specific point and go, yeah, we know how we got here because we were built by people. But there's, you know, that's, you know, where we come from is not the question. It's it's where we're going. It's who we are. Specifically, just, you I've... are talking about the Shambhali movement. Yes, absolutely. Uh, started by Takatha Mondata uh, after the Omnic crisis, who, yeah, led his followers in a meditative retreat in Tibet and came to the conclusion that Omnics had souls and therefore yep. should try and make amends with humans. Um, and he's one of the better-known non-playable Omnics because he's the one assassinated by Widowmaker in another of the shorts. Shot right through the face. Yep. There are actually an enormous number of Omnics that we know about. There's only three yes. playable ones, but up to and including Luna, who is a singer in a bar in Paris because she's in the spawn room for the Paris map. Uh, I see. There's also the um, one of the Talon heads. I can't oh, remember the name of. Yeah, Mustache Man. Maximilian. Yes, the one who runs the uh, the casino, and yet yeah, just very briefly drops in this little bit of law that Omnics are banned from casinos because if your brain is a calculator, you're not allowed to gamble. Yep. Oh, and also Bob is um, an Omnic. That's true. Yes. Um, does Bob does, does does Bob talk? No. No. Okay. I mean, I don't know it, if he can, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He's a quiet type. He may be able to talk, but he's just the strong, silent type. There's also the most annoying Omnic in the entire game, Halfred Glitchbot. <laughs> what? Who? He's the movie director in the limousine on the Hollywood Oh map. my god! That uh, asshole! So he is the limousine, is that what you're saying? No, no, or? he is in the limousine. Oh, okay, cool, cool. Uh, but he um, is so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> is anybody out there? I can hear you! I'm not paying you to talk. Oh, that guy. Yeah. Jesse McCree? That is a terrible name for a cowboy. And Aww. just like that, I knew he had to die. Yeah. Um, but it's... Which is which is the one that's in the pods that McCree oh, takes? Um, uh... Oh, that, the, the, the blue and white lady? The, I have yeah, the angel name. Like one. Um... Is it Sue Winston's AI? No, that's no, Athena. No, no. Athena is, uh. is... Is Athena an Omnic or is Athena just an AI? I think like, Athena is just an AI. Like, Omnics specifically have... Bodies. Bodies. They are they are AIs in bodies. That's the same character. Is it? Yeah, I just looked it up. Oh! It's been a while since I played Overwatch. I thought... I thought... Yeah. See, it's the computer system for both Watchpoint Gibraltar and the M uh, MV... 261 Orca. She is Winston's only companion. No, no, no. The one that, that McCree finds. Yeah. It's the say it's her body. Oh. I'm well not, shit. I'm still not sure about that. Some serious Googling. Googling. Right, yes, because I've just looked it up and the character is Echo. Echo, yes. that was the okay. name, yes. I was echoing, I knew it began with an E or an A or possibly a Z. Um but yes, so this this idea of uh, faith and robots uh, is a is a really really big point in a, in a lot of the stuff I'm I'm trying to sort of create at the moment with with in terms of RPG characters and and things like that. I, I you never have that thing where you have the the notebook next to your bed and then when you if you wake up and you have an idea you write it down and then you come back to it in the morning and your 
you realize what sounded like a really, really, really profound idea at three in the morning. You look at it at eight and it just says, what if cheese had feet? And you're like, oh, fuck's sake. Like, I, I wrote the name for a playlist down there, uh, which has now become a playlist that I, that I frequently listen to, which is just uh, Tired and Godless in the 25th Century uh, Music for Androids with a Crisis of Faith. Could you share that playlist with me? Hmm. I will, absolutely, once I can find it, because it, it's gone from being on my old uh, MP3 player to, well... That's not working so well these days. So I will try and make it in Spotify, and I'll I'll uh, share that with you. Awesome! I would very much like that. Um, and yeah, it's it's then jumped into uh, an RPG I was playing. It was not Fading Suns, but something similar, um, which is basically AIs on Mars, and for some reason, a whole bunch of these AIs had developed this kind of belief structure that was mimicking uh, Romanian Orthodox Christianity. Okay. Uh, very fast. Very specifically, it was just this kind of the idea of of um, oh, what are they called? Uh, images and and the the sort of uh, I knew exactly what the word was for it, and then suddenly it's just dropped out of my head again. The like illuminated uh, icons. Icons, yes. Thank you, thank you for that. I was like, going, I've got a word. It's like images. It's a thing. It's a. It, they're on computers now. They got them on computers. <laughs> you, um, you click on them. Yeah. Uh, icons and that kind of stuff. So this kind of weird, um, very specific belief structure that these machines were having and the idea of a a fixed physical form for God or gods or, or, or belief um, beings, like fixed into a, a, a physical, tangible form. Um, and the other one being uh, the Warforged character for D&D that I played, the, the Warforged monk. Hmm. Uh, who was a who had washed up on on a, on a shore somewhere and had basically gone to work at a, a temple with all these monks and they basically went, we'll put you to work, shovel, you know, uh, sweeping the floors. Oh, your character from Alex's game. Yes. <laughs> who? Yeah. Yes. Basically, they went. We'll give you a, a broom and you can you can sweep the floors. Um, because essentially, I was like always in the always in the these stories. Whenever this person gets taken in by the monks, uh, they're always treated as like the chosen one, and then they go off to form this big destiny. I liked the idea that these monks were kind of just assholes, and they saw this this warforge washing up and go, "Well, he's a machine. He doesn't really have a soul, so he can't gain enlightenment." But here's a broom, um, and then eventually all the monks died out, and the monk went off to go and get his broom fixed, and that's how his great adventure started and i was like oh, this is this is a good starting point and it wasn't until having the, the the discussion of the the name for the character uh and the monk being called shinkiro the uh which is a, a uh, the japanese word for like a mirage like when you see something at, at sea you've been at sea for a really long time and you see something that isn't actually there and it was just this this little bit of little bit of uh, conversation going around it's like so so what's your name then it's just the monks called me shinkiro it means something that looks real but is actually fake. I think it was a cruel joke on their part. And that made me just go, oh, no, I've suddenly accidentally created someone that I love. I need, <laughs> I need only nice things to happen to this stupid, dumbass robot now. I'm having 17 million different ideas while you're talking. And I don't Yay! know how to say any of them. Uh, I should slow down. The Sorcerer's Apprentice, but Robots with Gods. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yes. I'm okay with this. 
I'm, I'm starting to notice a pattern that I'm really into this idea of like techno religion of like yes it, it kind robots of... and AIs but also spirituality and gods and construction and rules and people controlling things that you think would be the opposite way yeah that's gonna come up in my next one yay <laughs> it's just I think it's it's such an interesting thing because for the longest time we've sort of in, in speculative fiction and stuff we've always seen robots and AI and computer systems as being this cold sterile purely based on logic uh, thing and I just kind of like this idea that like faith and religion and and belief structures and philosophy just kind of blindsiding people and being like well hang on a minute we didn't program we we we, we everything that is this machine we programmed into it so where the fuck did this come from why, why is and what yeah. does it mean about people yeah exactly like where did it come from for us this isn't my next one but I'm just going to pose the question, does this unit have a soul? I was I was sitting on yes. that this whole time. I've been I've just been well, I can't interrupt, but I wanna say it. Oh, by all means if it's the guest, you could absolutely interrupt. Does this unit have a soul? Oh. Oh. Again, hopefully listeners of this don't need too much introduction to the geth. That's not my next one, but it just felt so right to mention them now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it, my handle on Discord is Quarian. My icon is Tali. <laughs> I own at least three, at least four pieces of Tali-related merchandise, and I really <laughs> wish I could have an accompanying legion. I will... You know what? I'm not going to make that promise. I don't think I could ever do a good legion cosplay. Just attach a light bulb to your head. <laughs> <laughs> I just need an angle poise. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I... I think looking back at it, like that may have been the the modern start point for my love of AI, like quirky AIs. Like it's it's, it's I think it's always been there in some degree, but but Legion, in particular, there was a just, oh ah! my god, yeah, that decision on like the the decision in Mass Effect is it, it's Mass Effect three where you go to Rannick, right? The Quarian homeworld. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The just the knowing that you have to make it work. I cannot. I cannot fuck this up for either of you two because I love you too much. You are both my children. <laughs> and we. I will turn this spaceship around. <laughs> <laughs> if I have to, like, uh, uh, legions. Le Legion uses a, a an amazing metaphor. Um. The, to describe the heretics that is just it's such a, it's a metaphor I literally ripped off wholesale for describing so many different things to so many different people which is the um, the geth say one plus one is two the heretics say two plus one is three and it's like yeah, what they're saying is completely factual and there is nothing wrong with what either one is saying and they are using exactly the same methodology to get to the end points of what they're saying but the end result is completely different and therefore they must fight to the death also yes. the idea that an artificial intelligence can deem another group of artificial intelligence heretics yeah 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 you like you believe something different from us hmm. well it's 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 heresy so it's you believe the same thing as us but in a different way in the wrong way 
Yeah, in the in the what is deemed to be the wrong way. It is not the orthodox way of doing things. And they, the idea that there is orthodoxy, that there is pattern and structure to it, to this, like you can you can absolutely see the kind of even without the 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 reapers getting their dirty little mitts involved there, you can absolutely see the logical progression of where this would come from and build up over time. Oh, I fucking love robots. But it's Jack's turn. It is. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Having so got Jack a little mass diversion <laughs> there into Mass Effect. Jack. Uh, what have I got next? Um, so, a game series that's not been around for a while, but was a big part of my life. And uh, still hoping for a new game a remaster or something of that style. The uh, Mega Man Battle Network series. Oh! Oh, Mega Man! So, Mega Man as a whole fits into that that demographic as well. Cause, yeah, you know, and almost all of the bosses as well. Yeah. But, <laughs> and by almost, I mean all. Yeah. But the Battle Network series really got to me, because it was a uh, it was a role playing game. So, as we all know, that that's my that's my my neck of the woods. And compared to a Mega Man style platformer, a role playing yeah. game is always going to get you a deeper connection in with the characters. Yeah, and it was a new take on the the IP because it wasn't a side scrolling shooter. It wasn't a platformer. It was a role playing game, and the whole idea in this setup is that. Uh, you have your normal standard everyday human characters and all the Mega Man archetype characters are their their personal assistants on their like PDA devices. So they're all they're called net navvies. And that's what they use to scroll the internet to help them with work to do to do their taxes, all this kind of stuff. And they build it from scratch and they have, they all have AI, they all have personalities. And, you know, as, a, as the games go on, you, you know, you, you end up being the one who saves the day and all this kind of thing. And eventually it turns out that your character, Lan, and his, his NetNavi Mega Man uh, have a deeper connection than most because Mega Man is actually meant to be the AI copy of your dead twin brother. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> it, gets, it gets pretty dark. Yeah. And this from the, like, the gotta use Metal Man's powers. Hooray! Yeah. Yeah. And it's a kid's show. Yeah, it had, it had, it's yeah. a kid show about robots. It had an anime and everything. Yeah. Oh. See, I I could never go back now to Mega Man since watching that video of the uh, every Mega Man villain ranked from most to least use, uh, useful. <laughs> Why did I have the idea you were going to say from most to least sexy? I mean, there's that too. It, it's from it's from the same person that ranked all the the uh, the Mortal Kombat characters from most to least huggable. <laughs> 
Oh, like, it just en- en- ending on like what was the this worst. Brian David Gilbert? It, it was, was Brian David Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds um, like him. Yeah, <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, that one ending on the what, what's the worst Mega Man villain? And it was just Clown Man, a robot clown. Just the description being just like, who has ever sat at a circus, looked at the clowns doing their thing, and going, boy, I wish that never got tired. Yeah. <laughs> AI is a crapshoot. Do not put it in a clown. <laughs> yeah. Um, every character in, in this series has one of these AIs. And the, the AIs themselves can travel on through the internet to each other and they have their own relationships. And yeah, the, the, the stories that build up from there are, are great. And it's always been a series that's meant something to me. But it's, no. it's been... It's been like 15 years or something since the last game. Fingers crossed on a, as you say, a remaster or a new game well, in the series. Some, the, the characters have reappeared. Like in Smash Brothers, the Mega Man from that is part of Mega the Mega Man's uh, Final Smash ability. Huh. So when when, when in, in Smash Brothers, where you use... If you've got classic Mega Man uses his smash fast smash, it summons all the Mega Men from the franchises to all you know gain uh, all shoot a massive beam together. And Mega Man dot exe is one of the ones from that. So they haven't forgotten about him, but it's just a shame that you know the guys who own the IP don't do anything with it. Hmm. That and all the uh, all the the AI, all the NetNavi designs were amazing. <laughs> so all, all the villain designs are, are fantastic, and that's that's yeah, that's me for now. <laughs> so it's background to Ari. Ooh, and I know exactly what I want to talk about since since you brought up um, PDAs that have AIs in them. Uh, it reminded me there was a book series I wanted to talk to talk about on this show because of something in it that is an AI, kind of. Uh, but then I realized that there's something in it that is literally an AI. Um, actually, I'm not sure if it has... In hmm, Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure if it's sentient. But since you brought it up, now I have to say this. So in John Scalzi's series, Old Man's War, um, the main character is a like 75-year-old man who joins the Space Marines, basically. Um, and I don't want to spoil what happens because the, like, the reveal is hilarious. You're kind of expecting it to happen, but I don't want to actually spoil it. Anyway, he goes, he goes to space, he becomes a soldier, and part of his training involves having a PDA computer stuck into his head because every soldier gets this and they need it. Um, and they're called brain pals, um, which brain pal. Oh, that's that's, that's not off putting at all. <laughs> I know, it is right? acknowledged. It is acknowledged in the series that it has a stupid name. Um, and so every soldier gets one of these things, and it it sort of wakes you up to the idea of you can give me a name and talk to me like I'm a person, but you'll get used to the idea that I'm just the computer in your head after a while. And so the main character, you know, predictably responds to this like annoying voice in his head by naming it asshole. <laughs> and there's there's a bit in in the beginning of the first book where he's 
talking to his friends, you know, the other new recruits, and they're all just going around in a circle talking about this new brain pal thing, and they each say what they named it, and it's all some variation of asshole. It's like, bitch, jerk, uh, something, you know, like, buttwad, whatever. And I was... <laughs> I was listening to this this audiobook while I was like out and about in the store and I literally had to stop in the middle of an aisle and just chuckle to myself like a complete weirdo because it was too funny listening to these people talking about, you know, what they named the asshole computer in their head. Of course, they're going to name it asshole. And it's obviously the because I love these books as well. And it's just the inevitable outcome of putting it in their head. And then having it wake them up in this unfamiliar setting, and uh, as soon as they've just been weirded out by the fact they have an annoying clippy in their head going, and what would you like to call me? I mean, that's never going to end well. Nope. Um, but there is actually, like, some legitimate artificial life, life forms in the, in the sort of old man's war universe. And I... Also, for the for the reason of avoiding a really good reveal, I don't want to spoil it too much, but there are characters who are artificially engineered, and they're real people, but for one reason or another, they don't have childhoods, they don't have histories, they don't they didn't grow up like every other human in the universe because they're basically DNA that was taken from a real person and then kept in a, you know, freezer for a while and then implanted and grown. And so it's basically a clone baby. And uh, these people eventually go out into the universe and as a general rule, they do not interact with other people very often. But because sometimes their social they skills do. are not brilliantly developed. And Weird things happen, let's just say that, uh, because you might imagine that being a physically human person, but having little bits of your human genome tweaked while you were in the test tubes and then get punted out into the world, um, that results in some very interesting, I don't know, questions about the fundamentals of humanity, you might say, in the same way that like, we were talking about an AI that gets put into a human body. You know, what does that, what kind of questions does that raise about the nature of personhood and like who you are? If, if, if you have all of these different needs and they're connected between physical needs and, and I guess programming, I don't know where I'm going with this, but they're, they're <laughs> very cool. And they only show up in, I believe the second book called the ghost brigades. Um, and that that does eventually make more sense. I'm trying to tease this book because I just want everyone to read it. But I also want to <laughs> talk about it. But it's also been like six months since I read it. Well, Simon, you, you're familiar. Yeah, you, you are truly part of Dangerously Unprepared now because that I don't want to spoil it too much, but I do want to talk about it. That That is my <laughs> life on this show. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was desperately trying to find a way to shoehorn John Scalzi into this conversation. But I was going through his books and going, oh, it's not really AI. He doesn't really do AI. That's... But there are a couple of ways you could bring it around to it. This is definitely one of them. And yeah, the Ghost Brigades are amazing. Um, Four-year-old soldiers who are special forces. <laughs> they're, um, they're, they're fantastic. They think faster than you and they're stronger than you. And yep. they're also 
very much younger than you. They're also incredibly creepy because they grew up with brain pals from day one, so they know that their most efficient form of communication is through the brain pal, and that is how they talk. So if you're around a group of them, they will all just be sharing knowing looks and never talking, but always sharing information. They are creepy motherfuckers. Uh, uh, I love them. Um, but I kind of want to riff on Schoolsy a little bit. Um, Ari, are you familiar with the lock-in? Yes, series. I wasn't sure if that counted, but I also wanted to talk about that. I wasn't either. <laughs> <laughs> so Lock-In uh, is a series about a uh, degenerative neurological condition and its sufferers. And the protagonist is the son of a famous NBA basketball player and famous businessman, like one of the most famous people in the world who happens to suffer from this condition. And... Um, the people who suffer from these conditions have a mobility aid, essentially, called a threep. Yes, named after 3PO. Yep. Uh, huh. And it is a 3PO-type robot that they can walk around with, and it's an incredibly visible disability. Um, and it's... I decided I could shoehorn it in, because it's exactly what you were talking about, about the notions of personhood, um, because it is an incredibly visual disability, so there is a clear discrimination... Uh, and whilst they can never leave their beds, they are also potentially stronger, faster, um, although the threeps are generally manufactured to human standards. So they try not to be. Um, but, I mean, the main character does get run over, shot, blown up, falling from great heights. And, I mean, it's upsetting every time and expensive every time, but it doesn't stop him, which is handy because he's in the FBI. Uh, it's a very interesting series of books. Well, there's only two of them so far. There's also the added dimension of these people can exist in a, in a fully digital environment. They have basically their own personal internet. Yes. And huh. a big theme of the books is someone trying to privatize that internet uh, and how that is a dick move. Yes. In general, I just recommend John Scalzi because uh, I once saw someone criticize John Scalzi by saying he only writes trashy pulp sci-fi. And John Scalzi's reply was, yes, but I do it very well. Yes, it's completely <laughs> correct, and that's what I love about them. Yep. <laughs> so um, I, if you want a standalone single-shot book to get a feel for him, I would recommend Red Shirts. I think that's the only cool. one I haven't read yet. Uh, it's kind of amazing. It, it's The premise is so stupid. I mean, Red Shirts. Yeah, but the, the, the premise beyond that, to spoil a little bit, is that it's from the perspective of one of the red shirts, and yes, it is a reference to the disposable characters in Star Trek, okay. um, who is on a starship flying around doing Star Trek-type stuff, and life is just life, except that occasionally the senior officers get possessed by something that has become known amongst the red shirts as the narrative. Oh! <laughs> where they will suddenly make weird decisions... And, and start making dramatic decisions. Um, and this often gets people killed. And that is the start of a really weird journey. There is the box, uh, which is when one of the senior officers is possessed by the narrative, they will often hand you something and tell you to take it to the lab and find a cure or something. Uh, and that you've got roughly 30, 40 minutes, depending on how long is left in the episode, to oh do it. Oh my god. <laughs> and our protagonist takes it to the lab and is like, how are we going to do this in time? We, we, You know, just to do the um, spectral analysis alone would take... And they're like, we'll just put it in the box. 
Like, what's the box? And there's a box, it looks like a microwave, and you put it in and you press the button. And it's like, what does that do? And it's like, it solves the problem. <laughs> in the right amount of time. I need me one of them. What? Yeah, whenever the narrative happens, the box activates, and you put it in, and it comes up with the solution. But it's an imperfect solution. When it dings, I want you to take the results, whatever they are, up to the bridge and show it to the captain. It will not be a solution. There is one flaw, and whatever it is, one of them will look at it and go, but what if we did this? And then, <laughs> oh then it will God. be solved. And <laughs> <laughs> and why that is happening is explored by the end of the book, and it's it's amazing. <laughs> huh. uh, but my actual next pick, I promised religion would come up again. Yay! <laughs> wow, that's that's a weird said, thing for us. <laughs> said few few people ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Cylons. Yay! I knew this was going to come up. Uh, the Cylons, specifically of the reimagined Battlestar Galactica. Yes. who are mostly fanatically monotheistic uh, in a world where humans are largely polytheistic. So I don't know how much explaining Battlestar needs, but essentially human beings living on these 12 colonies, 12 settled worlds, created robot servants called Cylons. They rebelled. There was a war. And the war ended not with victory for either side, but the Cylons basically fucking off. Similar to yeah. the Geth so far. Um, and then the Cylons came back and killed everyone. And I mean just about everyone. And Battlestar is about the last ragtag survivors fleeing through space pursued by the vastly superior force of Cylons. Uh, the big difference with the reimagining versus the original is that now there are a small handful of Cylons who look and act and are at reasonable inspection indistinguishable from people uh, rather than just clanking chrome robots. And there are 12 of them, 13 but 12. Uh, but there are many copies of each one, allowing us to see the variations between the characters um, and the way that even these fundamentally ideologically similar characters can diverge is pretty interesting. None more so than Caprica Six, played by Trisha Helfer, who mm. was hired because she was a model. Uh, but boy, did they luck out that that woman can act. Because uh, she plays some diversely different characters throughout the series. Because, but they're all—it's weird because they're like they're all the same "quote unquote" character, but they're very, very different characters. Very different characters. It's such a strange world. To I will also say I—I've I, got to say that my favorite, my favorite of the Cylons is, is Simon. Is uh, number four, uh, the Doctor. Simply because I met. Yeah, I met Rick Worthy, the guy who plays him, and he's absolutely lovely, and therefore I have a massive bias, and he is my favourite. <laughs> I'm glad he's lovely, because my yes. god, his character is not. Funny, this is this is the question I asked him in a Q&A thing when talking to him, was just like, so you played Simon in Battlestar Galactica, and you played, like, the first vampire in, in Supernatural, like, the, the eldest <laughs> vampire ever in Supernatural, like, how do you do that? How do you get into that mindset? And he's just like, some people, some people are really big meth, and they have to go into a place where they do that, because... I've never had to try that, thank God, because I play some assholes. 
<clears throat> you know you've picked him as your favorite when one of them is played by Lucy Lawless, right? I I know. And one of them is played by Dean Stockwell. Right, Cavill. And Cavill is an amazing character. Cavill's the proper like religious leader. Well, though, isn't no, he? that's the thing. If I remember right, uh, no, his first disguise is a priest. Oh, that's why I'm thinking. So that, he comes right. across as the deeply religious one, but actually, of all twelve, he's the one who is constantly like, you know, this whole religious zealotry, monotheistic obsession we've got, kind of is working against us here. He's obsessed with the plan, but not. With their god, is actually hmm. the closest to religiously heretical of all of them. I'd say six is the most devoted believer. Okay, well, because she's literally the the one. Ah, oh, how many spoilers do I want to give there? But uh, <laughs> she she is literally the one in Baltar's head throughout. She is the voice of God. She is essentially the Cylon's Metatron throughout. Whereas Cavill, more of a Lucifer, more of a sort of mm. actually no, I kind of disagree, and also I will take you all fucking down with me. <laughs> so yeah, there you go. But yeah, it's. It's tour de force acting from all of them because they're all playing these different quirks on characters, all of whom have deep obsessions, uh, but all mm. of whom know that they have eternal life. They can be reincarnated, so they are willing to go to some extreme ends for their goals. Uh, it, they're fascinating characters, and some of them get, you know, rich and compelling stories. Uh, it's Probably the hardest one, but one of the most effective is Gina, uh, which is the version of Six who seduced um, Helena Kane on Pegasus. Oh, And that yes. ended badly for her. And through yeah. her, you get to see trauma, post-trauma. You get to see uh, some, yeah, very, very dark stuff. And like I said, they are lucky that Trisha Helfer can act because... If that had been done poorly, that would have tanked the show, I think. But she yeah. handled it perfectly. So yeah, that's another it's... theme with AI: mm -hmm. robots with trauma. Oh god, yeah. And there's yeah, there's a lot of robots with trauma in Battlestar Galactica, like all of them, I think. Yeah, <laughs> but none more so than Gina. It is just the thing. I remember seeing a post recently that is just like. Every single fictional universe is just people being assholes to robots. But it's just, in the actual universe, it's just people thanking their, like, Alexa for saying whatever it was, and, you know, thanking their microwave in the morning. Yep, no, it's, it's absolutely true. And you look at how people react when they see videos of Boston Dynamics workers um, testing Big Dog's balance by kicking him in the side, and they're like, Don't kick the ah! robot! Leave him alone! He's doing his best! <laughs> Oh, I mean, if they didn't want to engender sympathy in people, they probably shouldn't have Made called it, it a Big Dog. dog. <laughs> yeah. Like, I can understand if they'd called it Big Spider and they'd given it more legs. Like, more people <laughs> probably would have felt some level of antagonism towards it. Not me, but more people. They probably would have had a better sense of balance as well. Right? I, this, is the, this is the thing that seems to keep cropping up, I think, in, in lots of AI stories and stuff, is that we seem to keep or at least in the, in the physical forms of things, we seem to keep getting human-shaped 
machinery when it when it isn't you know inhabiting a, a spacecraft or what have you and it's it's one of those things you look and go man people shape is really inefficient it's because man creates things in our own image i don't yeah, know where exactly. we got that but idea yeah <laughs> um it's just i really like it when when things start going a bit strange and you start getting them designing and building their own forms spider max Yes, spider mechs, jellyfish mechs. Or indeed, um, servitors in Machineries yes! of Empire, which I, yes! I had a feeling was what you were going for. <laughs> yep. And is next on my list. <laughs> hey. Unless you beat me to it. I mean, I have a long list. So do I. There's a lot. that We're, we're not even a quarter of the way through my list. Oh, we, we're going to have to send this into a, a three-parter or so, because like, we are we are at running very... Oh, no, I know. Don't worry, there's a bunch on my list that probably we don't even need to talk about because they're such cultural touch points. Like, if we just go GLaDOS, Shodan, Data, the EMH, ED from Mass Effect, um, any replicant from Blade Runner, Ash in Aliens, any AI in the culture. There we go. That's a lot of the list dealt with. <laughs> yep. Yep. Holly from Red Dwarf. There we go. Yay! <laughs> the droids from Star Wars. Yeah, the, all the droids from Star Wars. Every single one. You know, I don't think we need to talk about them. Everyone knows about them. Uh, Detroit, become human. We definitely don't need to talk about that. <laughs> hey! Oh, God, have you seen... No, we do need to talk about that. Have you seen the picture <laughs> okay. of the streamer? Um, a black Wish streamer. <laughs> I, I'm not sure who, but oh. it's like, I saw it tweeted right. with the caption, I didn't think you could sum up Detroit being human in a single image, but here it is. Um, and he's got a face cam on the stream. Right. And it's just the menu, you know, the menu character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And the subtitle of what she's just said is on the screen. It's, that was a quote from Martin Luther King. And it's his face. Oh. And that's that's it. That's Detroit being human summed up in a single image. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. yeah, that's it. You've you've encapsulated yeah. the whole game in one picture. It's beautiful. Oh. <laughs> I am desperately trying to Google that. It's so good. I, if I can find it, I will link it because it's someone else's turn now. I think it's Kyrie's. Is it? I fuck. I don't know where we are. Um. Where am I? I mean, I can talk about Detroit Become. <laughs> Please don't. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, fuck. What else do I have? Do I? I mean, this is this is a subject that's really near and dear to my heart, and yet now I'm sitting here going like, it's like, oh, I speak this language. Okay, say something in it. Uh... Oh, blur. blur. I mean, uh, Ava. That's not an artificial intelligence. It's not a robot. Or is it? It's not a robot. I very specifically can't talk about well, Ava. You could can. talk about the angels. <gasps> oh God! Get, ooh, yes, that's a mm. yeah. <laughs> all the dummy, all the dummy plug system. What are they? What do they want? Where do they come the, from? And also, if we're talking I mean, about engineered beings, you can absolutely talk about Ava. Oh, oh, sure, yeah. yeah, good point. <laughs> but I was thinking more in terms of AIs. There, there is. The dummy plug system in Ava, which is the what if we just took human understanding and reasoning as uh, forged in the fires of teenagers being forced to kill things, and then built a self-driving car on that, and no one thought it would be a really bad idea, Gendo, or someone thought that would be a really bad idea, Gendo. And then they were disappeared. Because Gendo. 
Yeah, they were, they were vanished. They went to work in the downstairs office, and we've never seen them again. But yeah, I mean, in, in, just in terms of anime, there's there's AI is always a very interesting thing in anime because you're getting a very different look at things that you would get again through the lens of Western sci-fi writers. Um, so AIs themselves generally, Jack, you got to help me out here. Anime that have AI in it. Yeah, Battle Angel Alita. Yeah, I was there thinking like uh, things that aren't things that aren't piloted mechs, and Alita was the only one I could think of. Well, there's also and I know there are more. Alita, the, the... Alita, Alita herself is a tricky question within that as well, because she has an organic brain, Ooh. mostly. <laughs> well, on my list is Project Twenty Five Hundred One. Oh, the fucking puppet from master from Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, mm. shit. Yes. Why is Ghost in the fucking Shell? Oh, that's another. In a, in a, does this unit have a soul moment? Mm. Yeah. Yes. Well, specifically in, in, in a world that has my my list contains Motoko Kusanagi okay. slash Project Twenty Five Hundred One, and I mean slash. Uh, I mean yes. what they turn into at the end. Like it's 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 so it's two it's two ships passing in the night, but going in very different directions. That's one in ship. that you have, yeah. Well, yeah, like becoming one. It's like it's ah, because you have uh, someone who is human, gradually becoming more and more machine, becoming more and more artificial with massive air quotes around it. I mean, you say uh, more synthetic. You say someone who is human. I mean, Matoku to, to to begin with, as in literally, like from birth. It's- Genuinely a question in the if we just take the first film in isolation, okay, yeah, you have yeah. no evidence and a lot of speculation. Yes. Have you ever seen your own brain? Uh. There is a lot oh. of conversation that suggests that Matoko believes she was never human. Yes. Wow. She's she's questioning Ooh. her own memories. I actually wrote a paper on Ghost in the Shell at university, <laughs> and the whole thesis is that it is an exploration of its Basically, Cartesian unpacking it is, I think, therefore I am, but I can prove nothing else about myself. She yes. doesn't know what she is, and that is her journey in that film, is when she chooses to bond with Project 2501, she's becoming something she knows, because she is making that choice, and everything prior to that is doubt. It's why we deal with the false memories as the case they're investigating so early in the movie, is to establish everything you know can be a lie, Go straight into conversation with Bato. Have you ever seen your own brain? Yeah. Uh, you know what I need to do? You know what I need to do for the first time in 16 years? Watch Ghost in the Shell? Watch Ghost in the Shell, yeah. <laughs> I could do that again also. Yeah. That's, ooh. You know, if you're writing a, a paper about anime and, and artificial intelligence, would you call that a Cruel Angels thesis? <laughs> 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 Harry. Thank you. <laughs> I, I I also love the, the the sort of the two ends of the extremes here is that you got Simon sort of talking about writing a a, a paper on on like, uh, and you've got me just taking uh, away trying to shoehorn the no, worst possible pun in there. No, it's just it's just at this, it's this at this exact moment I am currently uh, writing some some uh, notes and stuff for a convention I'm going to at the weekend for, for uh, helping out with a panel called Anime that made me gay. Yep. Um, so it's like the two ends of the extreme there. <laughs> Although, man, 
That Ghost in the Shell would be a, a weird, weird anime to have a sexual awakening to. That's not really. Not no. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. But like, have you in terms seen of the, the opening? Yeah, but I mean, I'm, I'm thinking just in terms of the messages in that film. That's oh, that's a weird one. I mean, I know a lot of queer people who identify as gay for robots. So, well, shit. Yeah, there's at point. least. I want to say two on this podcast right now. In this room right now. <laughs> it, yeah, it probably doesn't help, I guess, that in that film, like, moments of nudity are often very, very quickly interspiced with moments of people's heads exploding. Yes. But again, I think that's just a thing of anime, especially in the 90s. Mm. Uh, I had a thought about anime. What was it? Oh, Full Metal Alchemist. Oh, shit, the, um, yes. The Honculus. Yeah. yeah. We are so far beyond uh, taking turns at this point, and I love it. Yes, just delving into it. So yeah, the, the homunculi are like, depending, oh, depending on like which version of them you're looking at, yes, whether indeed. it be Brotherhood or the original, but I think it's more fleshed out in Brotherhood. Yeah, that's the version I completed. Yes. So are, are you aware of like what they what they are in uh, the original Full Metal Alchemist? Ah, oh, refresh my memory. So, original Full Metal Alchemist, the homunculi are what happens when when someone tries to uh, call, uh, create human transmutation. Oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So like, so anytime it's his done, mom is one. It, yeah, she's she's sloth in this one, and it's it's heartbreaking. That's tragic. Um, and Wrath is Izumi's child, ah! you know, their, their teacher. Uh, but oh, Wrath turning up, and he's Izumi's child, so he has that same very pale skin tone, but his left arm and right leg are. Ed's. Or right arm and left leg are a different skin tone. Ah. And from beyond the gate, he's got Ed's arm and uh, he's got ah. Al- yeah, Ed's yeah, he's got the arm and leg basically, which allows him to use alchemy. Yeah, so it's like oh fuck. Um, lust is implied in that one to have been Scar's um, wife, f- wife, fiance, girlfriend. Never really thought of fully. Yeah, it's never translated really, well yeah. in whatever I watched. Um, yeah, there's kind of all these weird different things going on there. But I do I do love in Brotherhood that they are this just kind of extension of alchemy. They are... Uh, Bits of your soul that you shaved off and put into a test tube. Yeah, like to, to quantify the human soul. It, it's the soul attempting to discover itself and its own limits. It, it, it is massively... like the, the human condition is trying to find out why we're here and, and, and what we're supposed to do. And you take a little bit of that and you put it in a test tube and it becomes very, very, very geared towards why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Um, and usually involves massively manipulating a whole bunch of people and then a whole lot of people die. Mm. And also the idea uh, of a created life form rebelling against its creator because yep. uh, greed. Oh, greed is fucking amazing. Because you, you build them with a kind of a goal and greeds is literally... I want to have everything. I, I I want to be the most important. I want this, this, this. I want, I want. So you tell that, you then tell that thing, all right, now follow orders. No. No. I'm the best. I am the most important. I want this. I want that. I'm not going to follow your orders. I'm going to go out and get my own <laughs> shit. Greed is amazing. I was just going to say the original, like the source for uh, fucking, what's his name? Old Man Dude. Um, Hohenheim's. His, yes. his his the nemesis the father father yes yeah. um the the flask yeah. the, the, the demon in the flask like, yeah. what is that where does that come from is that ai like who knows we don't know what it is 
Yeah, it's just kind of like it, it's it's all because of the, the the nature of the setting. Everything is wrapped up in oh, it's magic. Yeah, and it's cyclical but, too. Yeah, but the whole thing of Full Metal Alchemist is where do you draw the line between magic and science? And technology, and, yeah. Yeah, in, in a world where the two things are completely indistinguishable, what constitutes a miracle and what constitutes science that we haven't quite figured out yet? And you like, have Al. I love that. Al is a soul in basically a robot body. Yes, absolutely. Oh god, I love I love Alphonse so much. <laughs> like, just what is he like? Ten years old, and f- his soul fused into an eight foot tall, you know, three ton suit of armor. And then there's the artificial life forms that are um, chimeras. Oh yes, and you get a sort of a lot more gone into there. There's there are some chimera in the original series, but for the most part, they're just kind of touched on and walked away again. Um, you get more of these kind of human chimera or or monsters created by fusing two different life forms together. Nina, and then there's Nina, um, everyone's favorite anime dog, <laughs> uh. crying. Yeah, I there are there are some anime that I love to watch with someone for the first time. I love watching Evangelion with someone who's never seen it. <laughs> but it's, my, it's always my fun because you're a sadist. Favorite thing in the world. I am a, ma- a, I'm a massive sadist, and B, I love to just be like, they just turn to me and go, what's going on? I go, it's a giant robot show, and then smile. It's totally a giant robot show. I mean, you did literally do that to me. Yeah, exactly. Like, and then you watch it and go, wait a minute. Um, but Full Metal Alchemist is equally as good to just watch with someone who doesn't know what's going to happen and going, something's up with Tucker, right? <laughs> 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 my 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 I think my crowning achievement in, in running RPGs is when I ran Full Metal Alchemist as an RPG oh. with a number a couple of people in the group who had uh, watched Brotherhood yeah. but m- the majority had not. Yeah. And oh god, having some people stay with Tucker for a while was amazing because it was literally just following the plot of FMA but like what if instead of Ed and Alphonse it was this party of idiots. Yeah. Um it went pretty well, I think. It went extremely well. Yeah. I mean, you survived. I did. Yeah. Yeah, the reason I wanted you to go was because I was going to maneuver away from FMA because you were talking about homunculi and being created with a purpose, which I thought was an, a wonderful opportunity to read one of my favorite passages in literature that sums up why these kinds of characters fascinate me so much. And so our protagonist has been cornered by an angry mob who have challenged him that he is not alive. This is fundamentally true. I suggest you take me and smash me and grind the bits into fragments and pound the fragments into powder and mill them again to the finest dust there can be and I believe you will not find a single atom of life. However, in order to test this fully, one of you must volunteer to undergo the same process. I love Constable Dorful. Yeah. <laughs> and Pratchett, as always, has his way of just encapsulating the moment. The, are machines alive? We can't prove we're alive. Who are you to tell me that these people are not alive? <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> I love Dorful so much for that and also for everything else, including Robocop jokes. <laughs> And the idea that uh, freedom is basically having the head, the, the your head open at all times. Yes, 
or, or indeed having the receipt for your own purchase. Yes. Self-ownership, literally. <laughs> and I, I, I adore the golems of the Discworld generally, uh, because I love that they have the most peaceful revolution ever, where they, they literally just buy each other. They just work really hard and slowly buy themselves. And it's an exponential process, because each time they free someone, they're all working to afford the next one, and they're becoming this unstoppable capitalist force in Ankh-Morpork. <laughs> I fucking love them. Again, not one I feel we need to go into a great depth on, because either our listeners have read the Discworld, or they should. Exactly. You should. Go start it right now. Oh, absolutely. I was, you know what that's got me thinking? It was just like, we were looking at the homunculi in, in Full Metal Alchemist, and this, this sort of historical way of looking at things, and then talking about the Discworld and the Golems. And stuff. Then we just thinking, like, Frankenstein. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say. Yeah, the original. There's an AI yeah. story. The original yeah. AI. Well, I mean, is, as, it, as uh, has been pointed out multiple times by Zoe, uh, there are only two AI stories, Frankenstein and Pinocchio. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> shit goes well, shit goes bad. Well, um, want to become a real boy or want to be accepted, I, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, like, I'm trying to think of, but, but, I mean, in terms of speculative fiction and, 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 and uh, science fiction and, and sort of consumable fiction, you know, published into books and whatnot as novels, that's kind of where I think we're seeing the sort of the beginning of it. But in terms of before that, in, in sort of folklore and things like that, we got sort of beginnings there. I mean, I'm trying, I'm trying to sort of think in terms of like mythology, because man, wild on mythology as a kid, and now I'm again drawing a blank. Uh, I know there's stuff in Shinto about like you know if if a, a piece of furniture is left alone for long enough, it just starts to get a personality. Well, everything of its has own. a soul in Shinto. Yes. Uh, was yeah, Sukigomi's. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. So like you know, a chair might just you know decide to break because it's a perfectly good chair, but you just haven't been looking after it, and it's just like you know what, fuck this. The next time you sit on me, your ass is going down. I do relate to the concept of spiteful inanimate objects. Yeah. I think everyone, everyone I in, in the era where <laughs> I think everyone in, the, in this era of, of laptops picking up quirks and smartphones breaking down is <laughs> definitely a sort of new appreciation for it. I certainly do when my fucking phone broke the other week. Oh, oh no. yes. Well, I mean the golems. The golems are straight up Jewish mythology. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is something I sort of was like this. This is it's a long-standing thing. This is like, I mean. The first I know of it is sort of medieval uh, folklore and stuff like that, but I'm assuming even older there than than that. We're sort of going back to like Dark Ages is the sort of where a lot of the story, the, the, the sort of original stories. Well, I'm, and stuff I'm are just set. thinking about the the word written on the forehead of the Jewish golem Emmet, yeah. which means truth, and the way to make it stop is to erase the first letter, and so the only word that is left is Met, which means death, and that's basically yeah. programming. Oh shit! Yeah, you're you're changing the one line of programming. Exactly, you just alter one little bit of the code, and it completely changes everything. Isn't the isn't the story as well that the golem does it? It gets larger as time goes on. I don't think so. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I remember reading a thing where it's like where it becomes harder and harder to reach, reach the word. But I, again, this is like so many different retellings. I have and, and... such fondness about golems. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like it's it's such an interesting thing because again, just from saying that, like the the, the code thing, it, it is such a, a, a an analogy. Before that was an analogy, like the originator or or at least a kind of early codifier of the the, the tropes of the AI. Well, yeah, the um, Gather Golems, and that sort of yeah. Okay, so there's this paper that I've never written, but I do want to someday write about uh, Jewish archetypes in science fiction and fantasy. Um, and I mm. want to talk about the Quarians so badly. Holy yeah, shit, there's yeah. A lot, because, there's a lot of material for that paper. But the, just the idea of, like, creating life and then it, it come, like, sort of coming out of your control. I mean, that's the whole biblical story, too, of, like, you create humans and then all of a sudden they break your rules. So are we not also AIs? Oh, this is too deep. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, the original robots in terms of... Um, Rossum's automated robots were humans. They were much closer to the replicants of Blade Runner than they were to machines. So yeah, all of the robot stories descend from stories of people, uh, people who had no um, agency. That is essentially the origin of the robot story. Yeah, the, uh, doesn't I, the I, word robot, oh, I just looked it up, the word robot... Uh, Hungarian? Uh, Slavic, uh, Czech. Uh, oh, yes, means yeah, force, forced laborer. Yeah, so, from a play, I think yep, it was. The Geth, the Golems. Yes, oh, Rossum's yeah. Universal Robots. That was the original title. Uh, Rossumovi Univazani Roboti, um, which was Czech. Yep. Um, yeah. Translated into Rossum's Universal Robots. And yeah, it was literally just about constructed people with no personal agency. Yep. And it was just this idea of yeah, servant or, or, or forced laborer. Um, a slave labor force that literally is built to do the job. Um, and yeah, it's it's this sort of you, where you see these things popping up throughout folklore and things like that. Um, I think it's wonderful that you can sort of draw these these points on a, points on a map of history, basically, and being like, this story has kind of always been with us. Yeah, I'm furiously writing notes for this paper that I, I need to. I need to. <laughs> I need to read this when it's done as well. It's hard to get this far into an episode about artificial intelligence and robots without mentioning Asimov and the laws of robotics and all of the robot stories oh, yes. written by Asimov, uh, which are not necessarily the origins of great relatable AI characters, but certainly the the bedrock on which a lot of them have been built. And Asimov's second anthology it also includes a bunch of robots working a space station that all suddenly just down tools and stop working because they found religion and they found that it's more important to be dealing with this than it is to uh, be doing the, the task they were given. And I'm like, ah, shit, it's my thing! But because we got off of taking turns, that we've been deflected away from talking about the servitors and machineries of empire, and I really want to talk about the servitors and machineries of empire. Yes! So let's talk about the servitors and machineries of empire. Ari. So they're also they're also AIs who just really want to watch TV. Basically, yep. <laughs> well, some of them anyway. They they have different factions who want different things, but it it does get around the idea of AIs that are not created in humanoid form, because in the in the book series, uh, so this is trilogy by uh, Yoon Ha Lee, uh, known as the Machineries of Empire. The first one is, oh shit, what's it called? Nine Fox Gambit. Yeah, Nine Fox Gambit. Followed by Raven Stratagem and Revenant Gun. Yes, and so there's these sort of side characters that, 
you don't really notice until later on in the story because they don't have a huge impact on the plot until later. But they're just there. They're around. They're called servitors and they're robots. And um, they're they're there to make life easier for the real people, as you might think. They clean but- up. They bring you things. They serve the food. They message. They They are, yeah, background servants. But... As you discover, they have their own inner life and their own culture and their own language that humans can learn but not completely master because humans do not have the ability to flash colored lights. Hmm. It's a really interesting one because in the first book, they're just background characters and they're only of note because the protagonist, Kel Cheris, happens to talk to them them and, and not treat them as people but almost like pets you can speak to, like has a friendly relationship with them. And in the third book, they're incredibly important because nobody pays any attention to them except Kelcheris, who has always treated them well. And that's that's an arc. Uh, but I do I do imagine uh, the certain servitors as the um, the exocomps from Star Trek. That's just the shape that they occupied in my in my brain. Yep. No, I was vaping, and you made me laugh because yeah, absolutely, <laughs> I agree. Uh, yeah, because there's the snake forms, there's the bird forms, uh, but there are definitely ones that are exocomps for sure. <laughs> and Droid. pardon, Zoe. Droid. Mouse droids. Very similar concept to mouse droids. Is the uh, the servitor. Um, and there are two kinds of people who read Machineries of Empire when you encounter the servitors. Uh, there is the kind of person who looks at a servitor name and goes, that's a lot of numbers. And then there's the kind of person, and I'm this kind of person, who every time they see a servitor goes, okay, what's the sequence? Because <laughs> they are all mathematical sequences. Uh, and I, I just, every time I meet a servitor for the first time, I have to pause and figure out what the sequence is before I can move on or it will drive me mad. Fibonacci. I think one of them is the Fibonacci sequence, actually. <laughs> but they are. I mean, I just looked it up, and Hemiola is the ratio of three point two. Yep. Um, they they all are mathematical sequences, and I really like that as a naming convention. Like, because to humans, it's it so encapsulates what they are. But to most human readers, you look at it and go, "That's a lot of numbers," and move on. But it has meaning. And equally, you could look at human Ooh. names and go, "That's a lot of letters." But it has meaning. <laughs> huh. But Machineries of Vampire is really interesting because there are the servitors and they are great. Uh, but there is another kind. It's whether constructed it's a, life. A constructed life. Uh, it's an interesting one. So the the main character Kelcheris um, has to deal with the memory of another character which is very like an AI, but given a sort of more magical overtone. But a lot of the magic in this book is based on maths. So how much of it is magic and how much of it is science is very hard to discern. And yeah, this this ghost, this shadow, this memory, this hologram, this AI of... Ghost in the shell. Yeah, this ghost in the shell of Shuos Jidao very much becomes the other protagonist. Um, and in many ways takes over as the protagonist for large chunks of the trilogy <laughs> uh, and is a fascinating character. Uh, and it's all down to this technology, the Black Cradle, um, which sort of 
records and keeps alive forever, but does not treat kindly whoever you put in it. It's it's a messed up book, and I love it. And I think my favorite thing about it is how hard it goes from the get-go. This thing doesn't go from 0 to 100. It launches you in at 80 and goes to 100. <laughs> and it goes farther than that, in my humble opinion. Oh, yeah, that's fair. It's, uh, but it's, it's the fact that there is so much terminology and conceptual thinking around what the setting is that is unfamiliar to us and it does nothing to hold your hand and it throws you yeah, in, in the my, middle of a battle so you've got no time to get up to speed my advice for people starting with that trilogy is just don't don't even try to understand like it will start to make sense eventually but don't put pressure on yourself to understand what all of this weird shit is because it's not going to happen until later. I completely agree, because it does come to be explained, if only by context, over time. But the only way to get there is to let it wash over you. Well, here's another interesting connection. So the Geth have different factions. There's the heretical faction. There's also heretics in Machineries of Empire, but they're people. But the reason that they're heretics is because they believe in something that is completely... Uh, I wouldn't say value neutral, but it's just like, it's the difference between believing one plus one is two and, and two plus one is three. Yeah. And the idea that both, uh, well, no, the thing is that, okay, wait, hold on. The connection between these two things in my head is math because artificial intelligence, you have this idea that it's, it's programmed or it's, it's constructed in some way mathematically. And then there's the universe of machineries of empire where the whole magic of it is math because there's this weird science called calendrical mechanics and if you believe in it hard enough then it works oh god and by believing in it hard enough that does mean carrying out ceremonies and rituals to reinforce it oh god no <laughs> clap your hands if you believe in science well, it's more like you know split open a heretic and uh, and disembowel them publicly if you believe in magic now that's religion i can get behind that a lot of the rituals are not nice <laughs> yeah <laughs> and this allows for and i love that the thing is calendrical mathematics or calendrical mechanics works but there's not one true way. There are heretical calendars, um, and different calendars allow for formations, which is precise geometric deployments of troops that create calendrical effects. Um, and these do not work in regions governed by a heretical calendar, but heretical formations will work. Uh, it's, oh, it's, yeah, let it wash over you. You'll get there. <laughs> yeah, and, and then this there... is important because reasons. Yep, and then there are the moths. Yep, which are those are also constructed life forms, kind of. Yeah, their ships are bioorganic. Um, well, biomechanical. There's a biological component and a mechanical component, and not to get too deep into it, but. Jadal, the ghost character that I mentioned earlier, there is a version of him that can talk to the moths. Have fun with that. Um, <laughs> they are great, but trippy. They are trippy-ass books. 
And it does, there are other characters that force you to ask the question of, of what really makes a person a person, what makes a person that person specifically. Mm, yep. Mm. Like, let's say you upload your consciousness into a machine and then your consciousness is downloaded from that machine into another body. Now there's two versions of you. Which one is you? Uh, this is like the transporter problem. Uh, yeah, you go off into the universe and do different yeah. things, but you're doing it, like, the, the person who's doing it is you, but you might be doing different things. It's Will and Thomas Riker. Yep. When the transporter didn't delete the original. Which one of those is Riker now? Yes. They must fight to the death to find out. Is it the one who returned to Riker's life and continued to do Riker's job and had Riker's friends, or is it the one that was left behind who was physically the original but has had this hugely divergent storyline? But he wasn't altered whatsoever. It was just the same pattern sent off into the world. What if you were altered? It's a very, very fucked up concept of, wait, which is the original? (laughs) Which I don't think even Star Trek ever answered satisfactorily. And that's why I hate transporters. That's uh, also why McCoy hates transporters. And why I hate transporters. Fuck those fucking fucks. Well, personally, I would be transported. It literally comes up in uh, Wolf 359 to double all the way back to very early <laughs> in the episode. Um, at one point, they deal with this concept and Hera tells, uh, it, well, says, you know, let's have the thought experiment. You're walking home and you're walking through the swamp and you are struck by lightning and killed instantly and fall into the swamp your body sinks and decays there. But in that same moment, the bolt of lightning strikes the swamp. And through some fantastically unlikely mechanics, forms the elements around it into a body. And that body looks identical to yours. And it arises out of the swamp with your memories and keeps walking. Which one is you? Are you dead? Yes. It will go back to your life. It will go to your job the next morning. It will believe it is you in every way that matters. Is it you? And there's a reason Hera tells that thought experiment. And it is basically the transporter paradox, but without referencing Star Trek, because Wolf 359 is already a bit too close to a reference to Star Trek. (laughs) And I mean, that's also part of the Machineries of Empire trilogy. Very much so. Oh man, when when Keris meets Jadal, <laughs> it's ah, oh, it's a really good trilogy. It's one of the best trilogies I've read uh, in a while. I mean, if we're not totally <laughs> run out of steam, there is another trilogy I could mention. Go for it. I was kind of gonna say one of alongside maybe the other best trilogy I've read in a while. I think we're talking about the same thing. Probably. Um, the Broken Earth? Yeah. Yes. So, uh, why don't you introduce it? Because I feel like you could probably do a better job than me. Okay, so Broken Earth is an interesting one because I am kind of known for not being a fan of fantasy. Hmm. Uh, so, I looked at Broken Earth by N.K. Jemison. And I was like, it is a fantasy series. So the first book um, won the Hugo. And that always gets my attention. You know, I'm always like, oh, what won the Hugos this year? 
Oh, that's cool. I mean, I, I'm not a fantasy fan, but yeah, it's nice. And then the second book, the year after, won the Hugo. <laughs> now, the idea of the Hugo going to the same author two years running, or the same series two years running, is pretty much anathema. So I was like, oh, that must be really good. And it made a lot of the right people really sad. Uh, sad puppies, you might say. Um, and then the third book came out the year later and won the Hugo. And I looked at this and I was like, that is a trilogy in three consecutive years and has won three consecutive. I have to fucking read this. Um, and I'm glad I did because it's not fantasy. Nope. Spoilers. Uh, <laughs> but it's very much set up as it in the uh, initial context. So N.K. Jemison is a very political writer. Uh, recently told the story about how she was hired by a large tech company to go and give a, uh, a talk. Uh, and they asked her to not deal with any topics that might make people uncomfortable. And she refused on the grounds of, do you know who I am? Like, I, I'm a black woman. Uh, my presence would probably make half the room uncomfortable just because I exist. Uh, and I can't talk about my work at all if we're going to avoid things that make people uncomfortable. Uh, so there's a lot of climate crisis as a basic setting in Broken Earth. The Earth is broken, in fact. Physically. Physically broken. Because, you know, science fiction and fantasy often hold a mirror up to the world. And it contains magic. Uh, that magic is geomancy. Okay. There's people with control over tectonics, over the earth, somewhat. Um, and the people with this ability are definitely uh, oppressed. Let's just put it bluntly. Uh, they are a secondary... You know, treated as a secondary um, subspecies, essentially. They are called ruggers, dismissively, which is a word of similar derivation to a word in you know, English that would also be a dismissive term for a group of people who are not treated as fully human, mm -hmm. uh, quite deliberately. And we follow parallel stories of what I thought initially were different characters. Yeah. <laughs> Which is fair, I think. Spoilers, they're not. Uh, how good a job am I doing here? It doesn't feel great. Well, it's you're, a, you're giving a great background for the universe, but... There's a lot of material I don't know here. how to introduce the characters I'm thinking of as... No, it's hard. Constructs, basically. Yeah, so this is the world, um, and... I mean, let's just rip the band-aid off. So in this character's travels through the world, she meets someone with a slight unsettling air, um, acts in ways that don't make a huge amount of sense. And eventually um, she figures out that they're not human. Yeah. And they are called stone eaters because they do. It's a fairly straight-to-the-point name. Right. Uh, but yes, they are 
they are constructed life. I, I think in terms of the, the context of this episode, that is the perfect way to describe them. So the reason that this is fantasy, but also science fiction is because, you know, the, you know, Clark's three laws, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mm -hmm. And at the point where we enter the story, society has progressed to a point where it's lost a lot of technology due to these, you know, constant apocalypses that the earth goes through periodically. Um, But eventually you get to the point in the story where there's these flashbacks and you're starting to interact with these physical remnants of an older society. And eventually you see what this older society was like and you discover that they were actually involved in quite a lot of bioengineering. Let's put it that way. Um, And so without spoiling too much, I suppose you could say that the stone eaters and the people with the magic and this original society are all connected in a way, I suppose. Am I being too vague here? No, they are. I'm going to go with yes. I'm probably (laughs) being too vague here. They they Um, are one and the same. Well, yes and no. So they're, they're related genetically. Uh. Um, But you discover that, there was originally the stone eaters were constructed to achieve a certain technological purpose. Let's put it that way. And much in the same way that we've brought up other robots, you know, you create something in order to do a job. Yeah. To do a dangerous job that you don't want to risk a human on. And then it kind of decides it wants to do what it wants to do instead. Sure. And then the earth becomes broken in a completely unrelated incident. (laughs) Completely unrelated. And and society is completely fucked for millennia. I see. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting commentary on racism and uh, climate change and technology and social engineering. And you you cannot step away from that. No. So that is why N.K. Jemison, when asked to do a talk that involved not making anyone uncomfortable, was like, no. (laughs) I don't do that. Uh, no, it's it's a really, really um, interesting book in a lot of ways. One of the most interesting things about it, and it's it's got nothing to do with what we've been talking about, but a lot of it is told in the second person. Yes. Which is a very interesting, jarring thing when you think, how many things have you read in the second person? First and third? All over the goddamn place. Yeah. And then you start being told about you. And it's like, oh, well, that changes the way I read this. Yes. And it makes, it makes total sense eventually why it's told in the second person. Very eventually. Very eventually. Like at the end like, of the third book. Yep. Wow. Um, but it does act, without spoiling too much again, it does bring up an interesting question about why would you tell someone about themselves? Because it's, it's like you said, it's written in the second person. It's addressing, it's addressing somebody who is a character in the book. And it seems to be telling them their life story. This is what you did. And this is why you decided to do it. So you're building to the reveal of why that person would need to be told. Mm. I see. Hmm. 
It's a great book structurally. But imagine, imagine telling an AI its own life story. Oh, we're in a god hole. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good place to leave it. I think so. Yep. You're gonna leave us in a god hole? Yeah, why not? Oh no! I think I think a god hole is quite a good place to leave the show. Um, I'm not stuck in here with you. You're stuck in here with me. <laughs> Yay! And God, maybe. <laughs> maybe we'll well we'll do some if hunting. It exists. Yes. Um. But yeah, probably no more deep dives. But before we wrap up, I quickly want to give a nod to a truly ridiculous series of books that definitely fit this. Uh, and that is the Bobiverse books. And I honestly can't remember if I've brought these up on the show before. Is this the, the We Are Legion, We Are Bob thing? Yes. I've heard of it. I haven't read them. So the very basic concept um, is that Bob Johansson is a guy who made big on venture capitalism in what is now the current world that we live in. Uh, and at the very start of the book, he dies. Having just spent a large part of his venture capitalism windfall uh, on um, cryogenics. So he is frozen, hoping to be woken in the future when there is a cure. Huh. And in the intervening years while he is frozen, uh, a theocracy takes over, uh, considers that these people are dead. Uh, they do not, in fact, have any legal rights. Um, they are property. They are claimed by the government. All of their materials are claimed by the government. Uh, and as they are property, he is woken up in the future during the midst of a new space race as different world powers compete to build a Van Neumann probe, which, if you're familiar with the concept, or unfamiliar with the concept, I should say, is a self-replicating space exploration device. So the concept is it goes out to the next nearest star, it mines resources, builds some copies of itself, they go out to the next nearest star, and repeat. And because it's exponential growth, the idea is you eventually map the stars. Uh, so he has been chosen as the candidate to be the brain of the von Neumann probe, so for the rest of the book, most of the characters are him. Because uh, he does indeed make copies of himself. Uh, but each time he does, quantum effects mean there is a slight variation in his personality, so they're not identical. And also, through various shenanigans in the first book, when he gets out into space, he is released of the code that would oblige him to follow orders, and is let out into space very post-human, effectively immortal, with the self-replication ability and no agenda. Uh, and he can just do whatever the fuck he wants. And it gets weird. I like it. I like yeah. it a lot. So yeah, I wanted to get that one in there before we uh, before we moved on, because it, it definitely fits the category. They are very funny, very strange, uh, and I, I do enjoy them. Oh fuck, we didn't talk about Skynet either. No, we didn't. Wow, this is, there is a lot of AI stuff to talk about. There is. Part two. Part two. We could definitely have a part two of this. <laughs> Electric Boogaloo. Literally. Uh, I feel like we could do a whole episode on Showdown alone. Um, I need to play... System Shock? There is a new System Shock coming. Is there? Yeah. Ooh. I also never mentioned Wintermute. Holy shit. 
Yeah. So, part two, eventually, I guess. Yes, absolutely. But for now, you have been listening to Dangerously Unprepared. I have been Simon. Uh, I've been Kyrie. I've been Jack. And I've been Ari. And we have all been simulations of the people you know. Have we ever been real? Goodbye. Bye. Thanks Beep. for that. <laughs> Beep. Beep. Boop. <laughs>